Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for being here for a joint simulcast of Zoom into Books and the Big Time Talker podcast. It's everywhere. iHeartMedia. Uh, you can find it anywhere that you get your, your podcast these days, even Spotify. Hey, those guys are in trouble these days. Uh, if you want to listen to the podcast, it's brought to you by SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. If you want to watch on Facebook or on YouTube and send us your questions for our guest author tonight, uh, award-winning author Joel Burkett, we would love to hear from you. Just let us know what you want to know about his brand new book, Strange Fire. And, uh, and I love the way Joel writes books. These are thrillers in the truest sense. So if you're into John Grisham, you're into uh, John LaCroix, if you like uh, Lee Child and, and the Jack Reacher books, you're going to love these series of books. And uh, Joel Burkett, thanks for being here. And, and I hear that you're big in Zimbabwe. I don't know why that is, but I hear you're big. Actually, I'm, I, I have. There may be somebody listening in from uh, Singapore tonight. Outstanding. Wherever you are, if you have questions or comments for Joel and Strange Fire, we would love to hear from you. Uh, you see the book cover if you're watching online right now. It's an amazing book cover. It makes you want to grab it off the shelf and take it home and tear into it, especially if you love thrillers. Um, I know that this is the third in a series of books about this young hotshot attorney, Mike Jacobs. Uh, but for folks that are not familiar with, with your books and what you do, give us the, 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 the sort of condensed Joel Burkett version of what Strange Fire is all about. Sure, I'm delighted to. Uh, thanks, Burke. Uh, Strange Fire is a suspenseful and a gripping novel about a, uh, a, a incidents that are occurring in Bradford County, Pennsylvania, uh, which is uh, part of the area where there's a lot of uh, fracking for natural gas going on in Pennsylvania. And uh, what's happened is that uh, there, are, there are wells that are being contaminated and uh, contractors are disappearing and people are dying. And the protagonist of the story, a young environmental lawyer working for Pennsylvania DEP named Mike Jacobs, who's all of 29 years old. Mike is uh, tasked with the job of helping to investigate what's happening up in, uh, in Bradford County. Now, Mike is, uh, is very concerned about the environment. He uh, loves working for DEP, um, but he's, you know, he's, he's, an, he's a normal guy. He's, uh, he's like you or me. He's, he's a, uh, a hardworking guy and uh, just wants to do the right thing. And he gets up there and DEP has taken the position that in fact, the fracking has not impacted the neighbor's wells or the uh, township well. And uh, he decides after a period of time that maybe DEP might have made a mistake, uh, but he's got to defend the department. And he's uh, faced with um, uh, the likes of uh, his old law school uh, nemesis, a uh, lawyer named uh, Darius Moore, who's uh, at a law firm out of Washington. And he's faced with um, uh, the Cajun uh, Director of Operations for Yukon Oil and Gas, Norby Lafleur. And uh, he's 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 got to he's got to try and figure this all out as much as people are pushing back against him. So um, it's a I think it's a really exciting uh, mystery. It's a it is a legal thriller. There's a lot of uh, there's a fair amount of uh, legal thriller stuff in this story. But this is a thriller. This is a, a, a thriller with a lot of uh, interesting stuff going on that goes way above and beyond uh, being just a, a mere legal thriller. But I do like to, I, I was very happy when somebody uh, compared me to John Grisham. So I'm very happy with that. I'll take that. That ain't bad. That ain't bad. Joe Burkett is our guest tonight. He's the award-winning author of Strange Fire, the latest in the uh, 
a series of Mike Jacobs legal thrillers set in that world of, of fracking and environmental law. Now, you did that for a living. And in this book, as you said, uh, this Mike Jacobs character, he has to go up against kind of his bosses and, and what they want him to do for the Department of Environmental Protection. And I wonder if, as a young environmental attorney, if that ever happened to you, did you ever start to dig into one of these cases and find out, wow, I got to go against the company line here? Well, you know, it happens actually all the time, and especially for lawyers working for the state or for US EPA, because the agency, whoever that is at the agency, takes a position, and then uh, the lawyers are required to defend that position. So in this case, which is, I'm going to say, a fairly common thing that happens, the department takes the position that uh, the, the drilling did not cause any of the contamination that's occurring. Mike uh, actually starts falling for the department's geologist, a woman named Missy Shelton. And uh, of course, that makes the story even a little bit more interesting. But the, um, you know, he is caught in between what the department is telling him to do and what he's believing is going on. And this happens, like I said, this is a fairly common occurrence uh, for environmental lawyers, especially those working for the state, is that, you know, the state or, or EPA or some agency takes one position and the lawyer's got to defend it even though ultimately the lawyer may not agree with that position. Not uncommon also for lawyers in private practice as well, I might add. Joel Burkett is a retired attorney and the author of this new legal thriller, Strange Fire. It is the international book launch of Strange Fire from our friends at Headline Books, available now at Amazon.com, HeadlineBooks.com, bookstores everywhere. You can visit Joel online. Your website is JoelBurkett.com, is that right? Yes, very difficult to remember. Just my name, JoelBurkett.com. Joel Burkett, B-U-R-C-A-T, Burkett.com. And this isn't just a book. This isn't just a legal thriller. This is, am I getting this right? This is the Kirkus Reviews Book of the Week? Yes, it is. Uh, thank you hey! very much. I, I just learned that uh, this morning. I, I get, uh, like everybody else, you know, I, I get dozens and dozens of emails from all different kinds of, of places. And uh, Kirkus Reviews, which is one of the most respected national reviewers in the country, Right. Uh, I get their their uh, stuff two or three times a day and I'm scrolling through it and I'm looking down and it says uh, best books and I'm looking down and it says best books uh, of the week and I look down and there's strange fire right there I was so excited so I didn't get any advance warning that it was going to happen it was just the book just appeared there and so I'm delighted obviously uh, that they identified it as uh, the best book one of the six best books of the week so I'm very very excited about that and uh, I hope that it, it brings it to more people's attention. So yeah, Kirkus Reviews, that's that's a big one. And I'm very happy with that. Oh, that's great. Look, you're an award-winning author. And so I'm sure it feels good to be reviewed as, as you know the, one of the books of the week. But I wonder how much of, of you doing this and doing it really well really comes back to the fact that you know your subject matter inside and out. In other words, could, could someone who is not or has not practiced law write a great legal thriller? Or, you know, in your case, someone who doesn't know anything about, uh, you know, fracking or your other books, you know, about the coal mining industry or, or that environmental law. Would it be difficult, do you think, for them to write a book in that genre? Did, did you knowing that stuff so well make it a, a little easier glide path? It does. And, and, and let me unpack what you said here a little bit. So I, I, I practice environmental law for 40 years. I went to law school to be an environmental lawyer. I went to college and in my second year of college, 
I decided I was going to be an environmental lawyer. So I took a degree, a Bachelor of Science degree in geography, which at the time in the 1970s was like getting an earth science degree. And I did that specifically so that I would learn all about the environment. And then, like I said, I went to law school to become an environmental lawyer. And then I practiced environmental law first with the state, with Pennsylvania's uh, DEP, the predecessor to DEP, and then in private practice. So I, I know environmental law, I know environmental issues, and I'm not an environmental scientist, but I can certainly talk with them and I can certainly understand them and I can certainly relate to them and, and relate what they say as I did over and over again in courtrooms and in uh, all kinds of different forms when I had to do that. So I, I really do believe that I understand the environmental issues uh, pretty well. And then in terms of the law, well, that's what I did for 40 years. Um, just three years ago, I was named, uh, actually my last year of practice, I was named Central Pennsylvania's uh, Environmental Litigator of the Year by Best Lawyers in America. So, I mean, by third parties recognizing me as a, as a I'm going to say, pretty good environmental litigator and environmental lawyer. But, uh, you know, when you look at a book like a John Grisham book or Scott Truro or Lisa Scottolini, those are people who are and have been practicing lawyers and they know their stuff. And that's what makes their uh, legal thrillers uh, particularly uh, good. There are a couple of people out there who are not lawyers who have actually written some damn fine uh, environment, uh, legal thrillers. Uh, so um, uh, um, I'm trying to think who, who off the top of my hand, head, I can't think right now, of course, uh, off the top of my head, but I know there've been a couple of them who have written some pretty good uh, legal thrillers without being lawyers. I've read uh, Mr. Grisham's books, um, The Pelican Brief and um, uh, The Appeal and Gray's Mountain, and they're really good books, but you can read, as you're reading it, you get the sense that he really doesn't know the environmental issues as thoroughly as somebody else might have known those environmental issues. He writes a great legal thriller. Uh, and but, maybe that's why the, the stuff that John Grisham, for example, that he writes in a small town courtroom in Mississippi rings so true because he spent so much time there, right? When he's writing about small town courtrooms in Mississippi and even large law firms, nobody can touch him. Let's just say that. Strange Fire is the uh, Kirkus book of the week. One of them this week is by Joel Burkett, our award-winning author and our guest on Zoom into Books and the Big Time Talker podcast. Autograph books are available uh, during this, this international book launch, Joel will personalize it for you. If you'd like to pick one up, hop into our chat box and, and we will get you uh, squared away. You've got some pretty heavy hitters who are saying some pretty great things about your book. You know, uh, John LaCroix, for example, who's written a ton of bestsellers and uh, Bill Landy who wrote Defending Jacob. When you get th those kinds of accolades from your peers, is there a, you know, is there like a, an 18 year old Joel, Joel Burkett that goes, man, I, I can't believe that's happening. Oh yes. Uh, you definitely are walking around on air for, uh, for a while after something like that happens. And uh, you never know. I mean, I, I, you know, the, the book goes out way, way in advance, long before there's a fancy cover on it, uh, long before all of the commas are corrected and all of the typos are corrected and it goes out to um, authors you know, they really, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing among authors is that they really do try to help each other out. But no author like uh, Bill Landay, who wrote Defending Jacob, uh, or Lisa Gardner, who's written some terrific book, books, Scott Berry, who appraised my last book, no author is going to put their name on uh, something and, and say that it's a great book unless they feel it is a great book. So when I got the, um, when I got the uh, really, really nice 
uh, blurbs back, uh, little reviews back uh, from Bill Landay and John LaCroix and uh, Lisa Gardner. And previously when I've gotten it from uh, people like Steve Berry, I mean, it, that, that just makes you feel awesome. It, it's a great feeling. And, and the other thing too is it's, it's, it goes in the uh, pay it forward category. So uh, the time will come when uh, some young author will come to me and say, hey, Mr. Burkhat, would you please take a look at my book and write a blurb? And I, and I certainly will uh, do my very best to do that for a, a young author someday. At that point, Joel will say, get off my line, kid. Get out of here. I don't think so. <laughs> Strange Fire is the book. You can see it right over our author's shoulder if you're watching online right now. It's uh, from Headline Books. It's uh, one of the Kirkus Reviews Books of the Week. And uh, it's available now, bookstores everywhere. Ask for it by name. Pick it up online, of course, at any of the online booksellers, including headlinebooks.com. And uh, you can also get it at joelburkett.com, the international book launch of Strange Fire. Hey, Joel, so you write about what you know. You live still in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. You're right in the center of the state there. And fracking is a thing there. But someone watching right now may not have any idea what that means. So can you give me a non-lawyerly description of what fracking actually is? Well, there are two ways of describing it. Let me, let me describe it first the way the industry would describe it. So uh, understand that old traditional conventional drilling involved drilling a borehole down into the ground until you got to the point where the oil or the gas was, and then pulling the, uh, the drill bit back out and then having the oil and the uh, gas come to the surface. It that gushes out point. just like in the movies, yeah. It gushes out just like in the movies. That's how it was done for um, 125 years uh, everywhere. It was just like in the movies. What happened was though, that the, the, the engineers realized that there are rock formations that they call tight. So you've got shale and you've got other rocks that are really, really dense and really hard. And not only that, uh, but they can be really deep as well. And uh, some of these scientists and engineers figured out a way to make that borehole go straight down vertically, just like it used to, and then turn and go horizontally and then follow that, uh, that, that uh, seam of uh, rock, uh, in some cases, several miles, if you can believe that, uh, hmm. utilizing some advanced uh, computer uh, um, mechanisms and, and uh, drive mechanisms. And they can follow that seam, even though the seam is probably dipping and curving, they'll follow that seam. Now, we're getting to the hydraulic fracturing part. So what the, uh, what the engineers would say is, okay, when you finally get to the point where you can't go any further for whatever reason, the end of the seam, uh, geology, uh, geography, the uh, mining rights, whatever it might be, uh, they stop. They actually cause a small charge, a small explosion to take place that busts open the pipe under the ground. And then this is the hydraulic fracturing part of the fracking part. They actually force millions of gallons of mostly water, about 98% water down into the ground. That's what a, a oil and gas man would say is the fracking. They're now forcing that, that, oil, that water down into the ground and causing the rock to, to pop open. And then that allows the oil and the gas to come back up. In popular parlance, everything is fracking. So from the moment the uh, drill rig shows up on the site, uh, when they start drilling the hole, when they put the bit down into the ground, when they, when they uh, turn the, the bit uh, horizontally, uh, and then when they do the actual fracking part, 
uh, I would say in, in modern normal parlance, non-technical, non-industry parlance, uh, people would call the entire process fracking. And in your book, Strange Fire, you've got this young hotshot attorney, Mike Jacobs, who works for the Department of Environmental Protection. And he's called into this county where fracking is happening. And th there's, uh, you know, all sorts of, of murder and mayhem and badness that's going on. And he's got to figure it all out. And, and you know, I don't want to give too much of the book away. Uh, but, but that's sort of the backdrop of your book, Strange Fire. In, in the real world, because this is a, a great, fantastic made-up story, but in the real world, again, for folks that, that know nothing about this, why is this method of getting oil and gas out of the ground a bad thing? I mean, it's, it's pretty controversial. You read about it in the news, but I'm not sure that a lot of people really kind of get into the nuts and bolts. So why is this a bad thing? Why would a young attorney like Mike Jacobs go to this county and, and you know, wh why would all this be happening? Well, uh, let, let's put it this way. It's a highly regulated activity. There's no okay. doubt in anybody's mind that this is heavy industry. This is a very uh, technical, uh, very difficult, heavy industry. And it comes into an area like, let's say, Bradford County or Western Pennsylvania, where there probably hasn't been any heavy industry for 50 or 75 years. I mean, you have to go back to when the um, when the areas were logged over, when the original oil drilling took place there in the early part of the 20th century, you have to go back to when the railroads came through, when the canals went through. That was all considered heavy industry at one time. So now you haven't had heavy industry in these areas for 50 or 75 or 100 years, some cases never. And now you're bringing in this heavy industry that's very, very highly regulated coming into a part of, of Pennsylvania or Ohio, West Virginia, other states where there hasn't been any. So if you're talking to uh, folks who are involved in the industry, they would they don't understand necessarily why there should be any controversy. Yeah, this you should know, be a good thing, say, right? You're bringing jobs industry, into an area that doesn't have them. Not only jobs, but the industry folks are saying, hey, it's because of fracking that we have all of this natural gas and oil uh, to make America energy independent. That's what they would say. And they would say, not only that, we're bringing in lots of jobs, we're paying lots of tax money, we're paying uh, a lot of revenue into the state, and uh, everybody should be happy about it. The neighbors, however, on the other hand, first of all, they're going to say, well, wait a minute, I'm not getting any royalties. I don't have any uh, natural gas on my property. I'm not getting anything out of this. Not only that, but I'm not, I, I can't get a job with the industry because they like to use uh, people who are tried and true. So they're using guys out of Texas and uh, Louisiana and Arkansas and other states uh, where they have a, a lot of uh, history and a lot of background in uh, doing this industry. So I can't get a job. And not only that, but all the prices of everything went up. And not only that, everybody here is speaking with a Texas accent all of a sudden up here in northern Pennsylvania. And, uh, and the, you know, the stores have raised all their prices and and, and on top of all of that, and this is the thing that I think is, is a true concern that many people have, top of all of that, my water's gone bad, uh, my herd of cows suddenly died one night, and on top of all of that, I think that there are climate change issues that are involved, and uh, what is this methane going to do to our, our environment? So you've got, you know, the people on the one side who say, hey, this is a great thing, we're bringing all this industry in, we're we're bringing money into the economy, we're making America energy independent, and the industry would say, you know, there may be accidents, but, you know, 99.99% of the time, it doesn't hurt anybody. People who are locals who oppose fracking are going to say, wait a minute, hold the phone. People are being injured in many different ways. Uh, you're impacting the environment, you're potentially impacting the climate, 
and uh, and you're you're bringing in all these folks who have never been here before, and I can't find a parking space on Main Street, and I can't uh, I can't you know I can't afford the prices anymore because the prices have gone up because you have all these strangers in town who are who are taking up all the uh, apartments and hotel rooms and everything else, and therefore it's a, it's a bad thing for us. So it's it's a real um, real case of uh, which side of the street are you on because depending upon your perspective. You either think it's the greatest thing or you think it's one of the most awful, evil things that ever happened. And just like a lot of other great legendary legal thrillers, if you follow the money in Strange Fire, that's where you'll find the badness. Uh, Joel Burkett is our guest today. Uh, his book, Strange Fire, just named one of Kirkus Review's books of the week. And uh, the, the kind words are coming in for it. If you'd like to pick up a copy, autograph copies, personalized by Joel Burkett, available during the International Book Launch at headlinebooks.com, joelburkett.com, and you can always visit any of the other online or physical bookstores and grab this great page turner, Strange Fire. Our guest is Joel Burkett. All right, Joel, um, Mike Jacobs, fictional character, maybe a little of a young Joel Burkett in there. You were in that industry, you said, for over 40 years as an environmental lawyer, so I'm going to put you on the spot. You talked about both sides of this thing, so what's the deal? Is fracking bad for the environment? What did you learn as an attorney in doing that for over 40 years? Is this a bad thing? Should it be shut down? Or is that an awful lot of uh, overreach by environmentalists? The, uh, I'm really glad you asked me that question, Burke. The, uh, the Somehow question, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I thought about Which this on the spot. Now, the fact of the matter is, um, in my opinion, I think we're already looking at a time when we should be moving past carbon-based fuels, coal, oil, gas. We should be moving past all of those fuels as a starting point. Uh, climate change is a very real thing. Uh, the carbon dioxide from the burning of fuels, uh, the, the uh, methane uh, that gets released during the burning of natural gas, all of that contributes to climate change. Methane, they say, is a very powerful uh, greenhouse gas uh, with even 40 times as powerful as carbon dioxide alone is. So at some point, we've got to move past that. If you look at the, uh, the various scientific organizations that are involved, uh, they're saying you got to do it yesterday, that it's, it's been too long already that we've been dependent on carbon-based fuels. We got to get away from that. We have to start looking at renewables. We have to start looking at uh, solar, wind, nuclear, and other, other non-carbon-based fuels. Uh, conservation, of course, is a big one. Um, in terms of the fracking itself, the, uh, I, I believe that the problem is not so much with the fracking. I think it's with bad fracking. I think that there are many companies out there, including the biggest companies, that from time to time have had accidents. These are accidents that relate to everything from as, uh, as uh, ridiculous as a, as a truck backing over a 40-gallon drum or 55-gallon drum of chemicals that then gets into the groundwater. Uh, to something very serious as uh, when, when they put that pipe down into the ground, it's got to be cemented in place. If that cement isn't done right, then uh, gas and other substances can leak out. And I, and I think that that all contributes to the potential for uh, damage to the uh, groundwater. Also, um, that water, they use anywhere from three to seven million gallons of water, uh, generally fresh groundwater that's used in the fracking process. So when they uh, force that water down into the, uh, into the borehole to frack the, um, the formation, uh, 
that, that's a lot of water that's going in there. And that water is, uh, has got upwards of 2% uh, of, uh, of the water is chemicals and sand. And they're able to, um, they're able to recycle some of that water. So uh, maybe 90% of that water is able to be recycled and reused in the fracking process. But it also means that 10% of it can't be recycled or reused, and it's got to be disposed of somehow. There were a lot of uh, bad judgments and bad things that were done not too many years ago, within the past decade, uh, in terms of the disposal of, of that water. So, um, you know, I am a believer in technology. I am, so technologies such as wind power, solar power, these are all technologies that, that were not so great 15, 20 years ago and have developed uh, to be much better uh, today than they were 15 or 20 years ago. I do believe in technology and I do believe ultimately that technology can be improved. But I think that the problem right now that exists is that um, this very heavy industry uh, is, which is a highly regulated industry, uh, has from time to time has huge mistakes that have huge consequences. Strange Fires, the book, Joel Burkett is the author and uh, he's taking a stand. He says, ah, this is not a good thing, this fracking. And fracking is the backdrop to this incredible legal thriller that Kirkus Reviews has just named one of their six books of the week. If you, uh, if you like page turners, you like legal thrillers, I think you may want to check out Strange Fire, the latest in Joel's Mike Jacobs series. All right, let's get into the, the nitty gritty of how this story came together. Was there an article that you read about fracking? Was there uh, some impetus that was the jumping off point for you to write this story and frame it up around this industry? I was involved as an environmental lawyer in every industry that I could think of. I mean, literally, you name it, I was involved in that industry at one time or another, uh, either as a regulator in my early days, uh, working uh, on the other side from the coal industry and uh, uh, with respect to water pollution. I was involved in all of those industries at one time or another. And uh, when I went into private practice, I continued my involvement. Uh, representing a number of those companies over time, also representing citizens, but mostly representing those companies. And uh, I'm going to say about um, 15 years ago or so, uh, when fracking started to become uh, pretty big and prevalent in uh, Pennsylvania, I became involved in the fracking industry, representing uh, a number of the uh, companies, the drilling oil and gas companies. And so I learned an awful lot about it. One thing I was very, very careful to do was not to base my story on any clients or any real people that I worked with. So it's, it's more like the kinds of people, the kinds of clients, the kinds of settings. There were a couple of cases that I found in uh, court cases and environmental hearing board cases that I did use and rely on, not, not my cases, but cases that were published cases that helped to um, help me to write the story. Uh, but I was very careful not to base it on any any case that I worked on. Uh, rather, I based it on uh, general scenarios. So a scenario such as water pollution, you know, a scenario such as an accident that occurs at a, uh, at a, uh, at a drilling site, a scenario such as um, the potential for sabotage at a drilling site, which is an issue in this case. Um, I, I, over the years, and not even involved in the oil and gas industry, I saw many instances over the years where it was apparent that somebody tried to sabotage an operation, and often in a, in a kind of a humorous way because they, they absolutely had no idea what they were doing. And in fact, what they did was, they, what they did was so outrageous that the regulator came in, they said, there's no way, there's no bleach in this 
anywhere on this site except right here. And this bleach didn't come from this site. It was just so apparent that somebody thought that by dumping, say, bleach into a borehole uh, in a non-fracking situation, that somehow or another that would implicate uh, the operator of that site. But they, as soon as they did the the, uh, uh, the water te well testing, they knew that that couldn't come from the operation. They knew it had been uh, it had been juiced. That somebody had tried to get away with something. Somebody was sabotaging the operation. So. Uh, it's, it's based on uh, really a, a career's worth of incidents going way beyond just the oil and gas industry and certainly um, uh, cases that I read uh, from court cases and other places relating to the oil and gas industry. You said something interesting, and I'm not going to let you get away with it without calling you out on it. You, you sort of slid it in there in, in the answer to my question, and that was that you worked for some of the fracking companies, some of the companies that did this oil and gas drilling. And, uh, and I remember, you know, my only exposure to this industry, Joel, uh, other than being through a couple of those towns where fracking had caused a boom in those towns economically. And I thought, wow, this is great for these towns that were, you know, in, in serious trouble right before this, um, was a movie, I think it was called Promised Land with, with Matt Damon where it came out maybe 10 years ago. I don't know if you're familiar with that movie, but in that movie, he worked for one of those companies and they would come in and try to lowball the property owners and sneak in there and get their property rights uh, from them so that they could do some fracking. So if in one case you say, this is bad and we need to move away from this, and on the other end, you work for the big evil oil and gas companies, what gives here? Well, full disclosure, and I and I, I believe I've said this uh, many times, and probably every time I talk. Of course, I worked for a number of the drilling companies. Uh, you know, I, I've never I've never hidden from uh, my my background. Uh, but uh, one thing I found, and um, I'm going to say this is universal, not just the oil and gas industry, but every industry. The vast majority of the work that I did as an environmental lawyer, and that most environmental lawyers do is what we call counseling. So a client comes to us and says, uh, Mr. Environmental Lawyer, we need to do X, whatever X is. And we want to comply with the law. We want to get permits. We want to be able to build this thing. We want to get it through as fast as we can. So we don't want to horse around with doing anything the wrong way. And then the lawyer takes you know, a shelf load of books, back when, when lawyers used books, takes <laughs> a shelf load of books and You're has to interpret yourself. the law to counsel the clients so that the clients understand what it is that they have to do and then works with the agency. Uh, it's not always necessarily a, a conflict with the agency, but the agency generally will push back and you work with the agency to try to develop a permit and try to develop a, a way that a company can comply with the law. And I'm going to say that if you talk to environmental lawyers, they will, I think to a person say, 100% of the time, the clients are trying to do the right thing. Now, they're not going to most clients aren't going to do more than they have to, but they want to do what they're required to do. And that's the counseling side of things. Thing. Now, the other side is um, what, what we call the enforcement side. So the client has the thing that happens, whatever that might be. And again, it's not just the oil and gas industry. It's every industry. It's doctors with uh, x-ray machines. It's you know, uh, people when things septic, go sideways, you're there people, to help them. People with septic tanks, you know, homeowners with septic tanks. You know, it's coal companies, it's oil and gas drilling companies. Uh, they have a problem that occurs. You know, the, the x-ray machine isn't working right. The septic tank leaks. The coal, mine, uh, the coal mine operator does something wrong at his coal mine. He allows chemicals to escape into a stream. 
there's there's a problem at the at the uh, drill pad, and uh, and then you're you put on your litigator's hat and you end up representing the company because uh, the government will come in, and the government uh, you know may want a gigantic civil penalty and they may want something that your client is willing to push back on, and then the lawyer represents them to try to minimize the penalty and minimize the um, uh, the enforcement action if, if you can do that. At the end of the day, I'm going to say maybe um, 95% of the time the cases are settled, uh, but 5% of the time you might have to go to a hearing and uh, represent the client in a hearing on that, and then you leave it up to a judge. Most cases in Pennsylvania, an environmental hearing board judge who then ultimately makes that decision. So it's, you know, it's one of the things that environmental lawyers in particular, and maybe we're unique, but that was my exposure for all of my career. One of the things that environmental lawyers in particular value probably more than anything else is their integrity. So when you go to an agency and you sit down with the agency and you say, I represent XYZ, and this is the information that I'm giving you about XYZ. If you don't have integrity with that agency, if they just blow you off and they say, oh, don't trust the word that Jones is saying, because we all know that Jones or Smith or whatever never is never honest with us. Well, you're not going to be effective as, as an environmental lawyer. So environmental lawyers, to a person, value their integrity, and they will do everything that they possibly can to try to uh, bring the client into compliance. And very often, by the way, they're the most effective ones at convincing the board of directors, at convincing the client that they've got to do something a certain way, even though it may be very, very costly. I will say, again, uh, you know, cards on the table, there were a couple of times that I had clients who um, I believe were trying to get away with something, who had lied to me and lied to the agency. Interesting. Joel Burkett is a retired environmental lawyer, full-time author now, and uh, in my case of full disclosure, he's kind of a big deal. He has uh, one of the Kirkus Reviews books of the week this week for his new legal thriller, Strange Fire. Uh, and Joel will be a featured author at the Headline Books booth at the uh, Association of Writers and Publishers Big Convention uh, in Philadelphia in his home state. I think that's your hometown too, right? Aren't you a Philly boy? I'm a Philly boy and I'm proud of it. By the way, Burke, I thought you were going to ask me a follow-up to that last point that I made. I was waiting on it. Uh, that is, well, what, what about those one or two guys that you thought were trying to get away with something? Because what I was going to tell you was that I fired those clients. And Did you really? Client, you actually fired the client? Oh, yes. If I ever had a client that lied to me, that was it. I was done with them. I wasn't going to have any, because again, it was my integrity on the line as well. And, I, and if a client was lying to me, it's happened. Uh, I'm thinking about two instances. I fired the client. I wasn't going to have anything further to do with them. Interesting. If you want to meet Joel Burkett in person and grill the attorney, you can do that when he heads to Philadelphia for this Association of Writers and Publishers event. Uh, the big conference is March 23rd through the 25th. If you'd like to get a copy of Strange Fire right now and see for yourself if it is the page turner that Kirkus Review says it is, one of their books of the week, you can pick it up at headlinebooks.com, joelburkat.com, amazon.com, wherever you get your books. When you sat down to write this thing, and there may be some young writers here who are saying, hey, I want to see how this guy did this. How did he make a book that Kirkus is, is calling out as one of their, their books of the week? Did you have a, a rough outline in mind? Did you know where this thing was going? Did you sit down and write for one, two hours a day? Did you have a word count? What was the process in putting this thing together so it would be this incredible page turner that people want to burn through? 
you're asking a question that has multiple layers, and I'm going to answer it uh, as fully as I can and not take too much time. So I'm legally blind, and I became legally blind uh, with, I have a disease known as NAION, non-arteritic anterior ischemic optic neuropathy, and some people call that a stroke of the eye. And I had that in my left eye in 2017, and then I had that in my right eye in January of 2019. And uh, the disease, from the time you, it starts happening till you are blind, takes about six to eight weeks. And then the disease stops, it stops progressing. And, and that's what I had first in one eye and then a year and a half later in the other eye. So I realize, I, I, thankfully, I can still see a lot of things. I, I have a yard-wide monitor uh, that's an ultra-high-definition monitor. If I put words all the way across the page, I can read them pretty well. So I was, I was sitting in my house. I, I was on uh, disability at the time from the office because I couldn't work. And I was sitting in my house moping around, and I had the TV on, and I was watching. Um, uh, you, we've all seen it now, you know, these... Uh, uh, para Olympians who were who had lost a leg and who were skiing and I was thinking to myself boy that's remarkable they're, these guys are skiing down a, a slope and they're really doing something that you wouldn't think that a that a person who's uh, who, who's uh, lost a limb would be able to do and I thought well what's the equivalent of that for a writer and I thought well the equivalent of that for a writer has got to be to write a book to write a novel so in March of 2019 uh, really just a month after I had become legally blind. I sat down and I started writing Strange Fire. Now, uh, the other thing too, has nothing to do with my vision issues, is I'm a terrible typist. I was a terrible <laughs> typist before I lost my vision. I'm still a terrible typist. Things haven't changed. Uh, well, it's gotten a little worse actually, but I'm a terrible, more of a terrible typist. So I, I had, uh, I got um, uh, a, a voice to uh, text uh, a software program called Dragon. And I used Dragon, and in the space of seven weeks, I wrote the first very rough draft of Strange Fire. And uh, that's, that's how I did it. I sat down, and every day for several hours a day, I did nothing other than write the book. And um, I, I just knocked it out. I, I, had, I had the concept in my mind. I did it no differently than I would have if I had complete vision, meaning that I generally don't like to outline. I know there are a lot of writers who do like to outline and some very famously outline very extensively. I never did, except if I get into a tight spot, I might want to outline how I'm going to get my, my characters out of that tight spot. But generally speaking, I don't outline the story. Uh, so I, I, but I do have in my mind a very definite idea as to where the story is going. So I knew how I wanted the story to begin. I knew something about the middle of the story, not, a, not all the details. And I had an idea as how I wanted the story to end. And I just, I sat there and just every day, six days a week, I, I worked on the story until it was done. Uh, when it was done, it was about 80,000 words. Uh, finished, it came out uh, at about 110,000 words. And um, meaning that I, I made quite a few changes, obviously, along the way. But that was, that was how I wrote that story. So I had read the New York Times article that, that was done about you and, and you're writing this book uh, as a legally blind man. I didn't want to bring it up. You did bring it up. So I want to, I want to ask you a little bit about that. I mean, here you are. You're a hotshot attorney uh, working in environmental law for a long time. 
in in Harrisburg, the state capital of Pennsylvania. And what happens? How do you find out? Do you wake up one day and your vision is bad in one eye? I mean, walk us through that that journey. Well, if this disease, which is different than other eye diseases, in my case, I found out later on what caused the blindness were blood clots inside my eyeball. So if you can think of an eyeball, there's your eyeball, and then you've got a, a, this, this stringy cord thing that goes to your brain. That's your optic nerve, that stringy cord thing that goes to your brain. Inside my eyeball, on the back of my eyeball, that's where the uh, blood clots formed. And those blood clots, uh, caught, there are maybe a million and a half little nerve fibers going through that, that little cord that goes to your brain, that optic nerve. And those little blood clots uh, killed off uh, some of those nerve fibers. And, and when did you figure it out? What caused you to know that this was even happening inside of your head? You perceive it. You see it. Your, your vision, start, you start to lose vision. I mean, at first, you do, you do this. It's like, oh, gosh, I guess I got something in my eye here. And I guess I got to blink a little harder. Maybe I'll get some eye drops. And, uh, of course, none of that's going to work because what's happening is in the back of your eye, not in the front of your eye. And um, ironically, I was going to visit a client in Oklahoma City, and I, was, I got on an airplane, and from the time I got on the airplane in Harrisburg to the time I got off the airplane in Oklahoma City, I had uh, really started to lose a fair amount of vision. There's really during that nothing. flight, you saw it degenerate during oh, that Oh, yes. It, it, I mean, by the, and because I had already had it happen in the other eye, I knew what was going on. And there, but there, it wouldn't have mattered. I mean, they, they couldn't turn the plane around or drop me off at a at a, you know, at a hospital and fix it. There's really very little that they can do for it, depending upon the, um, the kind of NAION that you might have. Uh, steroid uh, shots may, in fact, help, but um, that's very uh, controversial as to whether or not that helps at all. Uh, but I started losing my vision. I got to Oklahoma City. I realized what was going on. Uh, the next morning, I called my uh, neuro-ophthalmologist. Who even knew there was such a thing as a neuro-ophthalmologist? I called my neuro-ophthalmologist. I made an appointment for the very next day back in Philly. And I called my client and told him I couldn't come in and got on the next plane and went back to Philly. Uh, fortunately, because what happens is that in my case, it caused my central vision to really get very cloudy. So it, it means that I have a very difficult time seeing out of the center part of my eye. And also uh, in my right eye, the lower part of my vision, I'm, I'm completely blind in the lower part of my vision. I can see around the periphery in my right eye. My left eye is actually a little bit better now, which is ironic because that was always my bad eye for two years. Um, but it, it, um, uh, at this point now, I'm not permitted to drive. And uh, it made it very, very difficult for me to work because so much of what I did was on paper. So much of what I did required me to drive and get around uh, to places and be able to transport myself to places. Uh, so much of what I did required me to be able to, to see without any kind of uh, without any kind of uh, impediment. So uh, it, it took me a long time. I'm going to say it took me um, well over two years to fully adjust to the new normal. And it, it's, it's not a great thing. And even as we're talking about it, I'm, you know, I, I, I can see stuff. I see you. I see, uh, you know, the screen. I, I, can, I can see things. One of the weird things about this condition that I have, as I have it, is that at 10 feet, I can't see faces, which is a very weird thing. So if I see somebody approaching me and they're still 10 feet away, they, their face just looks gray to me, which is a very, very weird 
thing. It's a side effect that some people get with this condition. And what I've actually learned how to do is to tell people by their shape. So if I see that somebody looks, everybody has a certain shape, just like you have a face and your face looks a certain way, your shape looks a certain way. And uh, if, <laughs> if I'm at a, um, if I'm at a formal dinner and all the guys are wearing tuxedos, I'm in big trouble. Uh, but if, but if uh, people are wearing, you know, whatever clothes they are and I see them, uh, then I'll, uh, I'll uh, remember that, that uh, Burke is wearing a, a black jacket and a, and a blue shirt. And the guy standing next to you might be wearing a, uh, you know, a golf shirt. And I'll remember those, those things so that even if I see you more than 10 feet away, I'll recognize you as a result of that. If you're just joining us, Joel Burkhat is our guest today. He's the author of Strange Fire. It's one of Kirkus Review's books of the week. And uh, the story just got that much more amazing. If you just joined us because Joel wrote this book uh, just after being declared legally blind. He had to figure out the workarounds to do that. The book is getting incredible uh, accolades and testimonials from a bunch of other thriller writers uh, who are some of the biggest names in the business. It's a real page turner. And it takes place in the... Uh, the fracking industry in Pennsylvania, uh, where Joel is based. If you'd like a copy of the book, go to joelburkat.com, uh, headlinebooks.com, where you can get a personalized autograph copy or amazon.com, any of, of your uh, booksellers. When you look back on this trilogy of books with Mike Jacobs, uh, your life has changed dramatically since you started writing them. The central character of Mike Jacobs' life has changed too. I wonder about your writing style did that morph did that change since your first novel to this third one that you've completed are you a better writer was it uh, you know the the difficulty of being blind when you wrote this last one did that throw a wet blanket on the whole experience tell me about that journey of you and mike jacobs um I, clearly i've become a better writer over time. And I think if you look at most writers, whether it's Philip Roth or any other great writer, you take a look at their early books and the early books read a certain way. And then as you read their more uh, recent novels, you realize, wow, he, he really did grow and become a much better writer. And I believe if you start with Drink to Every Beast, which I think was a great book, and then follow that with the second book, Amid Rage, which is about coal mining. And then this book, uh, which is about fracking, Strange Fire. I think in addition to three really good stories, if you're reading it, you see, oh, okay, he's, he's learning a few things about writing and it's becoming a little tighter and a little crisper. Uh, and, and so I do believe that my writing has improved, just like the writing of uh, Grisham and everybody else who's written a series or a lot of novels over time, you realize that this person has become much more of a master in, in terms of the writing. So yes, I've learned an awful lot about uh, about writing, and I believe that uh, a drink, to, uh, strange fire, rather, is is a better novel. Let me also say that I don't just sit around. So I've got three other novels that are done, basically, and that I'm still in the process of editing and tightening up. And right now, I'm writing a uh, a new novel. So plus, understand that my very very first novel, what I like to call my starter novel, which is about the 1950 Phillies, my starter novel, uh, which was called Whiz Kid. I uh, was the very first one I wrote, which I wrote before uh, Drink Terry Beast, which was just endless. It was like 140,000 words. It was a lot of mistakes, you know, a lot of things that I'm embarrassed about today. That was my very first novel. And then I wrote Drink Terry Beast. And so I've written uh, three more uh, novels, uh, Little Brother, which is a 
mythical story about a small town police department that goes to war with the FBI, which could, of course, never happen. I've written a story called Lullabies and Other Lies, which is actually a, um, a young adult uh, post-pandemic thriller. I imagined a world where a pandemic kills all of the adults and only teenagers survive. And uh, the teenagers have to fend for themselves. Kind of a cross between um, The Road and, uh, and um, Lord of the Flies. So kind of a dark story. And I only wrote a story that was that dark after I read some really, really dark and really, really popular young adult books. And uh, I've written another story about a young uh, woman uh, lobbyist, environmental lobbyist. And then the one that I'm writing right now, which is called Fire and Ice, which is climate fiction or what's known as cli-fi about a uh, lawyer who gets stuck in a horrendous um, uh, hurricane as a result of, uh, which is made much more so as a result of, uh, of uh, climate change and global warming. So, I, I mean, I, I, I'm constantly writing. I, I, wrote, I wrote this morning, I, wrote, I write every morning uh, and sometimes later into the afternoon. But my, you asked me before about my um, writing habits. Generally, the first thing I do after I get up and have a cup of coffee is I'll uh, come to my writing room and I'll write for hours. I'll just write till about lunchtime, which is 12, one o'clock, whenever my stomach tells me to go get lunch. Then I'll have lunch and then I'll come back. Sometimes I'll write a little bit more. And then sometimes I'll do what I call the business of books. Maybe I'm getting ready for a program like this one tonight, where I might be um, you know, dealing with, uh, with headline books, my publisher, other issues like that. So I, I have got a lot of business issues that I have to deal with. And, and really a, a writer is kind of, I mean, unless your name is Patterson or King, a writer is really a small business. And uh, you, you, you're like a mom and pop small business. You got to handle everything yourself. You got to you got to turn on the lights in the morning. You got to you know make sure all the shelves are dusted. You've got to make sure the shelves are stocked. You've got to take the money when the people come in and give them their stuff. You've got to smile for everybody. And, and then at the end of the day, you got to count the receipts. So it's, a, it's very much a small business uh, as a writer. So you've got to handle all that other stuff. Remembering, of course, that the stuff that you really, really enjoy the most is the writing part, right? which I love. That's the thing that I love the most. But I've got to do the other things. It just has to be done. Since you've been diagnosed uh, as legally blind, you've obviously had to figure out some workarounds on things. And you talked about reading. You still love to read. Do you do you read in Braille? Do you blow things up on a screen? How do you read? And and how do you do some of the other things that that you used to do that that you can't do anymore? That you've changed how you do them. I a um, couple things. Number one, fortunately for me, I don't need Braille. Like I said, I, I have enough vision. That I can uh, that I can uh, still see well enough, even though I don't uh, see. I, I can't read paper very well. I really have a hard time reading paper. Uh, but I am able to use a screen. So I mentioned I have a yard wide ultra high definition monitor. I put a sentence all the way across the monitor from one end to the other, and I can read that sentence pretty well. I've also learned that there are certain fonts that work better for me. So a font known as Arial Black is a very thick font and the thickness seems to be better for me than the height of the letter. Um, another thing that I do is I use these very strange aids. So I've got uh, my Mr. Magoo glasses here, which uh, are only good for reading something about that far away. I've got a, uh, I've got a right here, I've got this uh, magnifier that I use uh, that helps me because uh, Mr. Gates decided that you can't uh, enlarge certain things on, uh, on a Microsoft screen. 
So um, to make up for that, I, I will use that. Sometimes I get my exercise by getting up and sitting down a lot because certain things you just have to get up and put your nose against the screen to be able to read uh, whatever it is, whatever that little tiny dialogue box says. So um, it's, it's a combination of all of those things. And it's really a lot of workarounds. And at any point in time, oh, I'll tell you something else I do is I've memorized so many things on the screen so that thankfully uh, the print button is always in the same place on my screen. If they really wanted to mess with people like me, what they would do is just have that print button be in a different place every time. That would totally mess with me. But since the print button- would mess with me too, so don't feel bad. <laughs> but it, you know, since the print button's always in the same place, I can- I can find that or the save as button. I can find that if I'm making a PDF so that it's always in the same place so that those little dialogue boxes are, I think they are designed very specifically so that they're uniform for a variety of reasons, but certainly it helps people uh, with vision issues such as myself. It's an incredible story. Uh, Joel Burkett penned that book you see right over his shoulder there, Strange Fire, just a month after being diagnosed as legally blind. Now it's the international book launch and Kirkus Review says it's one of their top picks of the week. It's also being praised by uh, some heavy hitters out there, John LaCroix and Bill Landy uh, and, and others, Lisa Gardner, who uh, are all singing the praises of this thriller. So congratulations on the book launch and congratulations for figuring out the workarounds to, uh, to keep writing. I'm assuming you got three more. There's no sign of letting up now, huh? No, I mean, I, this is what I love to do. I mean, this, this is the thing that I enjoy doing the most. I, uh, I did retire from practicing law. It was, it was way too complicated to try to practice law, and uh, would have meant uh, uh, <laughs> would have meant something that took me an hour to do before it might have taken me four or five hours to do uh, afterwards, and and that wasn't going to work. Uh, my clients certainly wouldn't have put up with me billing them for four hours, and I don't know that my firm my firm has been great to me, so I don't want to say anything negative about them, but I, I don't know that anybody would put up with uh, you know somebody taking two or three or four times as long to do something and uh, that would be a, a problem, but my firm has been wonderful to me. Um, but the, uh, no, there, it's, a, it's a lot of workarounds, it's a lot of adjustment. And uh, fortunately for me, uh, I've been able to devote really my full energy now to writing and, and with the aids and with the uh, screen and with uh, Dragon and, and all those other tools, I'm able, to, um, I'm able to write, which is something that I truly love. And I, and I love being able to to start with basically an empty page or an empty screen and a, a month or two later actually have a whole novel that's that's written there and sometimes i just wonder you know where did that come from and every now and again you know when uh, when the spirits are right and the words you, you you wake up in the morning and the words are just in your head there's nothing quite like that feeling you talk to any writer who writes a lot and they will describe the same thing and that is that Every now and again, you know, the gods whisper to you and, and the words just are there and they come out. Your characters whisper to you. Somebody asked me, um, uh, will there be another Mike Jacobs book? I'm not sure that there will be for a little while. I might let Mike rest for a while and sit in the waiting room until I call on him again. But I've got other characters who are singing to me right now and they, they want to come out and they want to play also. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm letting those characters come forward right now in, in some of these other books. What a great inspirational story from Joel Burkett, uh, declared legally blind just before beginning this, what is now a, a book that people are, are just singing about from the, the mountaintops, Strange Fire. Congratulations, and thanks for spending time with us tonight. 
Thank you, Burke. And I, I think uh, Kathy may have some instructions if people want to get a an autographed copy of the That's book right. because we we do have them here and we can. Uh, there, Kathy has a process. So if somebody wanted to order one right now virtually, uh, we'd be able to accommodate them. Uh, so we can uh, perhaps see whether Kathy is, uh, has any names of anybody who wants that right now. The other thing, too, is uh, there's an independent bookstore in Harrisburg called Midtown Scholar. And their uh, URL is midtownscholar.com. And they already have autographed books. And if you go on their website and go to Midtown Scholar and type in my name, uh, you can get a copy of this book autographed uh, for the same price as uh, as the regular price, the Amazon price is the book, and they will mail you a an autographed copy of the book. So that's that's kind of a, a an easy way of getting an autographed copy of the book. Very good. MidtownScholar.com. Also, uh, HeadlineBooks.com has autographed copies of Strange Fire by Joe Burkett. Kirkus Reviews. Kirkus Reviews says it's one of their books of the week, and he wrote it right after being declared legally blind. You'd never know it by reading the book. It's a great legal thriller. If you love legal thrillers, this is one you got to check out, Strange Fire, by award-winning author Joel Burkett. Joel, thanks for being here. Burke, thank you very much. It's always fun and a pleasure to be interviewed by you. Strange Fire is the book. Joel Burkett is the author. This is Zoom into Books with our friends at Headline Books and for our show sponsors, SpeakerMatch.com and the Big Time Talker Podcast. I'm Burke Allen. Thank you so much for being here. Now go out and make it a great day. Bye, everybody.